Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. Ahead, an investigation into health care groups' handling of sexual abuse allegations against staff. In many cases, the accused have been allowed to keep seeing patients. We'll also hear about how some obstetric units in rural areas are staying open at a time many have closed. We'll listen to a discussion on how the migrant crisis in Chicago is affecting suburban communities. Chicago's school board is getting rid of police inside school buildings. Also, we'll talk with some parents concerned with the loss of a private school tax scholarship. We'll visit a school where students are hoping to get their classmates engaged this election year and hear how electric school buses are becoming more common. Those stories and more ahead on Statewide. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. On the way, obstetric units are struggling, especially in rural areas. That's led many of them to close, but some are surviving, even thriving. We'll look at how some rural hospitals are making OB units work. But first, ever since Chicago announced fines for unannounced buses dropping off migrants in the city, the busloads have unloaded in some suburbs. But how are some of those communities handling the influx of migrants? Esther Yunji King talked with a municipal finance expert to find out. Justin Marlowe is a professor with the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. I'm curious, in general, how have the Chicago suburbs been faring with the influx of migrants? There's been a lot of variation from place to place. Uh, Some places have been very able to absorb the migrant population either on a temporary basis or even on on a longer term basis. Other places have really struggled. They don't have that capacity or they've found ways to move migrants to other communities that do. And I think a lot of that variation reflects the fact that cities really aren't designed to provide these kinds of services. As you know, many suburbs historically have not been welcoming to various groups, and many of them were a result of white flight from cities. Do you think the lack of funds or infrastructure is by design? I think the answer varies. I think you will absolutely find communities in the Chicagoland suburbs that have made a point of it to not build that kind of infrastructure for any number of different reasons, Uh, but it's clear that it was a conscious policy choice. In some places at the other end of the continuum, you have seen deliberate choices on the part of city governments, especially municipal village governments, to make sure that those sorts of services exist, if only on a temporary basis for people who are arriving before then moving on to someplace else. And then in others, you see a a combination of things, and and so it really just depends on, on where you go. So do suburban governments have a fiscal responsibility to build capacity for housing and services? Yeah, I, I guess I, as a public finance person, we, we probably think of it less in terms of obligations. Um, if there was some definitive source saying to mayors and city managers and village council members and others in the suburbs that this is going to go on for a long time and that they can fully expect that there's going to be large numbers of asylum seekers arriving in their communities for years to come, then I think it would be wise for any village and city to build that capacity, recognizing that it's better to spend the dollars and build that capacity than to do it on this ad hoc, temporary, very expensive basis, which is what's being done right now. And they would see it then at at that point as an opportunity. I mean, there, there probably are local businesses that could use the help. There probably are jobs that are going unfilled. 
Um, I think that's the big issue though right now is no one really knows. No one knows exactly how long this is going to go on, how many more people to expect the push in DC by a lot of mayors and governors to try to change the federal government's border policy is designed in some ways to, to provide that clarity. But at the moment, at least, there isn't any of that clarity. So it's really hard to know. I think it puts local leaders in a real bind. On the one hand, they know that they probably could or should be building that kind of capacity. But on the other hand, they don't want to build that capacity only to then not have to use it. Would a regional approach to resource allocation help? Yeah, you could make a strong case for that, because certainly that's one thing we're seeing is migrant buses arriving in Kane County or arriving in, in the far western edge of Cook County, and then people finding their way up to Lake County, because that's a place in and around Greater Waukegan, for instance, that has a little more of the capacity that we're talking about. So I think word is getting out and people are finding their way up there, finding their way into the southwest suburbs. Uh, and, and so it is, in some sense, a regional challenge. So you could definitely make a case for that. That's municipal finance expert Justin Marlowe, and he talked with Esther Yoonji King about suburban communities now seeing an influx of migrants. Midwest tribal leaders are in federal court in Chicago. They're challenging a crude oil pipeline that pumps a million gallons of oil every day. That oil goes beneath a gap that separates Lake Michigan and Lake Huron. The pipeline is called Line 5. It's owned by Enbridge, a Canadian energy company. To date, it's already spilled a million gallons of gas. But the company says the pipeline is an economic and energy lifeline. Juan Pablo Ramirez Franco spoke with the president of Bay Mills Indian Community, who started off by introducing herself. I'm going to start off in my language. So, Ani Buju Giwede Nagaboque Indishnakaz, Ganushnakani Nindonjaba. My name is the woman who stands in the north. My English name is Whitney Gravel, and I currently serve as the president of Bay Mills Indian Community, which is also known as Place of the Pike, and we reside in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. So, Whitney, what's been the environmental impact of the pipeline and the over million gallons of oil it spilled? So, Line 5 was built in 1953, and When it was first built, it was only designed to have a lifespan of 50 years. And yet what we've seen during that time is Line 5 has actually spilled near 1.2 million gallons of crude product throughout the Great Lakes, with some spills resulting in evacuation of nearby towns as they pursued the cleanup. And when we've been having conversations about Line 5, not only has it already had a critical detrimental impact on the environment and the ecosystems within the state of Michigan, but there's also this risk of a catastrophic oil spill also occurring in the Straits of Mackinac. And we have seen studies from the University of Michigan, as well as several other leading experts that show due to the amount of product that actually flows through Line 5, if we were to experience an oil spill in the Straits of Mackinac, it would result in several thousands of miles of shoreline in both Lake Michigan and Lake Huron being contaminated and essentially destroying the Great Lakes for the entire Midwest. A federal lawsuit was filed in Wisconsin but is under review in Chicago to stop the pipeline. What's the fight between Midwestern tribes and the Enbridge Corporation Line 5 been like? 
It's been a really difficult and hard battle for our tribal nations and indigenous communities to endure. So there's actually two different lawsuits that are taking place. One of those lawsuits includes the Bad River Band of Lake Superior Chippewa, which we came down in Chicago to listen to the oral arguments that are now before the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. The other lawsuit is taking place between Attorney General Dana Nessel in the state of Michigan versus Enbridge, which is going before the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals on March 21st. What both of those lawsuits are really focused on is there's a trespass, an active trespass occurring by Enbridge across the Bad River Band Reservation, and there's an active trespass occurring by Enbridge in the Straits of Mackinac because Governor Whitmer revoked their easements to continue to operate there. What's on the line with this court case here in this part of the Great Lakes? It's really comes down to the issue of tribal sovereignty. Enbridge Energy is trespassing on the land of the Bad River Band. They are jeopardizing the treaty rights of tribes in the state of Michigan, of which we have an inherent right to regulate and to govern. And if that right is not acknowledged by U.S. courts, it is going to have a very detrimental impact on tribes, all 578 across the United States. That's Whitney Gravel speaking with Juan Pablo Ramirez Franco, the story a partnership with Grist. More and more rural hospitals across the country have stopped delivering babies in recent years. Hospitals say that is due to many factors. It's harder to recruit staff like OBGYNs. Insurance also reimburses hospitals so little for deliveries, and overall people are having less babies. That means those who are pregnant in rural areas have to drive farther for care and delivery. This affects their health and safety. Natalie Krebs with Side Effects Public Media reports some rural hospitals have found ways to make the units survive. Jen Muse steps around construction equipment into a brand new labor and delivery room at Iowa Specialty Hospital in Clarion, Iowa. This is going to be the infant resuscitation area. So every room will have its own warmer uh, ability to resuscitate um, the baby uh, in here as well. Muse oversees the hospital's OB unit. She says the expansion is long overdue. Iowa Specialty delivered nearly 600 babies last year. It's an insanely high number of births for a town that has less than 3,000 people. When construction is complete, eight of the hospital's 25 beds will be dedicated to labor and delivery. That bed management is still going to be sometimes a little tricky, even with eight. But hopefully, we can make it work. At a time when many rural hospitals are making the tough choice to stop delivering babies, Iowa Specialty's OB unit is thriving. The reason is due in part to Iowa Specialty's partnership with maternal care clinics in neighboring small towns. Local OBGYN Daniel Gabrielson started these partnerships more than two decades ago. Gabrielson says he wanted to make sure women had local, more personalized care than they'd get at a bigger hospital. We built it up based on availability, getting patients in, treating patients like incredibly well, like just what how you'd want to be treated and not making it such a system thing. This personal treatment is what brought Corinne Tudor back to Clarion on a recent snowy winter day. She lives in Webster City, 
a small town about a half hour south where the local hospital closed its labor and delivery unit in 2018. She got all her prenatal care at Dr. Gabrielson's local clinic there. And then she's come to Iowa Specialty to deliver the baby. They're personal. They get to know you and check everything and make sure everything's okay and you're comfortable and just make sure everything's good. Other rural hospitals are finding ways to make its labor and delivery unit work. A recent study surveyed rural hospital administrators nationwide and found they reported needing about 200 births per year in order to break even financially and make sure doctors were getting adequate experience for safety reasons. But the study found more than a third of rural hospitals continued to deliver babies, even though they were below the break-even threshold. The researchers asked the administrators why. And they said because our community needs it. Katie Bacchus-Kazimanel is with the University of Minnesota's Rural Health Research Center and is the lead author on the study. That was so striking to me, and it makes me think that there need to be some policy changes to make that more feasible when there are hospitals trying to serve their local patient populations and are struggling to do so. Floyd Valley Healthcare in Lamar's Iowa is a good example of what Bacchus-Kazimanel's study found. The rural hospital in northwestern Iowa is remodeling its unit to expand and update its decades-old rooms. Tara Geddes is the chief nursing officer at the hospital. She says they found people were interested in going to a smaller hospital like Floyd Valley to give birth, but they didn't like its older facilities and small rooms. We're having more individuals or more families that want to deliver in that smaller kind of more personal care approach instead of going to the tertiary hospitals where they're just, it's so busy. Geddes says Floyd Valley hopes to increase births by around 50 percent. If they deliver, they're coming through our clinics, they have our providers, their families are coming through, and so they just recognize Floyd Valley as being the place that they can get all of their care. She says the hospital still doesn't expect the unit to be profitable, but sees labor and delivery as one way to bring in more patients. Natalie Krebs, Side Effects Public Media. Well, she sings, she dances, and now she's the newest Rockford Poet Laureate. Yvonne Boos has more on this 13-year-old. People down here think I'm crazy. That's Trinity Rucker. She's singing Almost There, a song from Disney's 2009 Princess and the Frog. I've had my share. There ain't nothing gonna stop me now cause I'm almost there. I'm Trinity is a seventh grader at Maria Montessori. She is the fourth youth poet laureate for the city of Rockford. She says she originally thought she was entering into a regular poetry contest. She didn't realize her name was in the drawing to be the next youth poet laureate. My mom called me when I was on my way to volleyball practice and at that time I wasn't having too good of a day. And when she told me, all I could say was, wow. Darlene Titsworth is Trinity's mother. She says her daughter is into a lot of things, but poetry is where her heart is. And I knew because a teacher uh, would always, I talk with them, they were always talking about her writing and her expressing herself. So when she said that's where she found her voice, where she could speak and express things. The onset of the pandemic triggered something more. During that time, the social unrest and staying home and seeing loved ones pass away around her prompted her to write more. She wrote a poem that won an honorable mention for the 2023 Gwendolyn Brooks Youth Poetry Awards. We're all equal, but who is we? I'm not you, no, I don't have blue eyes and blonde hair. Every time I walk into a room, people stop and stare. 
Is my melanated skin a crime or does it make me worth a dime? Trinity says George Floyd's murder inspired the poem Years and Years. I got so sick of hearing about my people just being beaten and nobody doing anything about it. The people who are supposed to protect us, they were the ones hurting us. Trinity plans to use her platform to uplift those who are homeless and also those in long-term care facilities. Bringing poetry to them is kind of like me bringing hope to them. Because in poetry, you can express feelings of joy and sadness. So I feel like I'll be bringing a coping mechanism to them. Titsworth says Trinity has her hands full with extracurricular activities, but she is excited about this new thing. Although it means she will be busier. I'm looking at it as a platform to minister, to express and show that age is only a number. It's the knowledge you have and what you have to share. Trinity is such a bright, talented person. She's very gifted. Writing, art, she does it all. Trinity will serve as Youth Poet Laureate for one year. Trinity says putting her feelings onto paper makes her feel better but using her gift to help others is priceless. Fairy tales can come true. I'm Yvonne Booz. You gotta make them happen. It all depends on you. So I'll work real hard each and every day. Now things for sure are going my way. Just doing what I do. Look out, boys, I'm coming through and I'm almost there. More to come on Statewide. Stay right here. We're back on Statewide. Coming up, we'll hear about a decision to remove police from Chicago schools. But first, students at a northern Illinois high school are trying to make sure their classmates are engaged in this year's election. Peter Medlin has more. 150 students wander the school library holding bingo cards. They're at Matia Valley High School in Aurora. One square reads, this person is a physician and believes every American deserves access to quality, affordable health and mental health care. This is a student-organized candidate fair featuring 20 candidates running for everything from a U.S. House seat to local judges and forest preserve commissioners. Rishvant Amsaraj is a senior at Matia and chair of its political engagement club, Citizens of Matia. The club has been organizing candidate fairs since 2020. We know that, you know, sometimes it might be a little bit scary to like go talk to a judge. What we did was we created a bingo card and the, the bingo card has like a bunch of questions that are a little bit more like familiar for students to ask, like either their friends or candidates. The candidates each introduce themselves and then stand around tables where students can ask them questions about the issues most important to them and understand more about what the candidates are running for and why. Bingo is meant to facilitate those conversations and in true bingo fashion, get five in a row or four with a well-placed free space and they get a prize outside of the pride of knowing they're more well-informed. Ansaraj says they get candy too. And he says he was surprised about the issues his classmates have wanted to talk about, like personal finance. Most of us are seniors here, so we're about to go into the real world. So it's important for us to kind of know what we're kind of getting ourselves into. Housing, money, finances. Some of these students are still 17. And in Illinois, 17-year-olds can vote in the primary as long as they turn 18 by the general election in November. Joshua Willoughby is another student at the candidate fair, and he was excited to learn more about local offices since he knew that otherwise he was going to show up at the ballot box looking confused at a bunch of names and positions he'd never heard of. Kira Nelson liked finding out that many of the candidates are just regular people who care. 
I thought it was cool how some of like the candidates here didn't have that much political experience. Like they were here and they really just wanted to make like a difference. I thought that was kind of exciting to hear. They wanted to go out and try something new. And the candidate fair isn't the only way Matias students are engaging with the election this year. First off, they have to register to vote. And with the help of the League of Women Voters, they set up tables outside of their government class where students could register. Thanks to a 2021 Illinois law, high schools can't prohibit nonpartisan voter registration activities. Sue Fuhrer is a government teacher at Matia Valley, and she's helping count how many students have registered. 84. Yeah. Okay. You're doing good. You're way ahead. I'm impressed. Okay, good. How did Obanzi do? I was going to say, did we do Obanzi? 61. <gasps> I thought that was a lot. This is great. Yeah. yeah. They did an event in the fall as well. We always do it like during our government classes and we right. kind of identify a day that works well with, with our schedule. Like today they're working on a project so they are able to leave the classroom. And I think we had like well over 100 in the fall. Mia Reed is a senior who just got registered and she says she could have done it online but liked that she could do it in person, hold up her hand and swear an oath. It just made it all feel more serious. So I wasn't originally raised in this district. I was raised mm. in the next district over, 131, and there's a big like poverty divide between the two. Mm. So coming to the school, it was very obvious that I can't do a lot of the same things a lot of students here can do. It became strikingly obvious that the way I make my difference is by voting, and I wanted people who are going to stand up for me. She and the other students know that there are pretty much no prominent politicians her age, and most powerful people in government are substantially older. But Reed says she's going to be the one who's around for the decisions that get made now, so she has to do her part. Early voting for the primaries is open in Illinois, and primary election day is March 19th. I'm Peter Medlin. Despite attempts by Republican lawmakers to save it, the Invest in Kids Act was allowed to sunset at the beginning of the year. Now parents and school administrators are facing uncertainty for what comes next. Cameron Coutinello reports. The controversial act allowed individuals and businesses to donate scholarship funds to private schools. In exchange, they got up to a 75% income tax credit. Scholarships were available to kids whose family income did not exceed 300% of the federal poverty level. Orville Skinner says he originally grappled with sending his kids to private school, but he now believes they would have chosen private school even without the scholarships. I didn't mind spending the money out of my own account every month just to um, make sure my kids were getting a quality, ed a quality education. Not that you can't get into public schools, but um, I always say that the private schools is kind of like the old school way of teaching things. You go to school, you get an education, you're not there to mess around and play around. Skinner's two youngest kids attend St. Mark's School in Peoria on partial scholarships. He says they paid full tuition before the act was passed, but the law helped alleviate some of their financial stress. Skinner says he doesn't know if his children will be able to attend St. Mark's next year. It definitely was a conversation that my wife and I had together, you know, like what do we have to cut out or what do what can we do to make it happen? And it was um, a discussion with our son that says, hey, buddy, we may not be able to do this this year. Michelle Botha's son attends St. Mark's on a full scholarship. He has disabilities which impact his eyesight. Botha says attending St. Mark's has helped her son grow as a student. I needed him in a place where there's very small classrooms, um, extra attention, and, you know, he doesn't need extra stress type. You know, I wanted to him in a place where he can grow. Botha says she does not believe her son will be able to continue at St. Mark's without the scholarship. 
She's applied for a boundary waiver through Peoria Public Schools to get him in a school that would best meet his needs. He's a very smart kid, very intelligent, so I would need him to go to a school that's going to continue to give him that um, stimulation of, you know, so he's not getting bored in class, but he's still able to grow. St. Mark's principal Noreen Dillon says 69 of the school's 177 students receive scholarships for the 2023-24 school year. Dillon says they're preparing for students not to be able to return next year. They do offer different types of financial assistance. We have a diocesan scholarship uh, that might be available for families. Again, it's based on eligibility and income. We have searched out for some other outside resources, but much of what we do for our students' tuition is raising money at specific fundraisers in order to do that. She says she's hopeful people will still donate without the tax credit, but knows those who do will likely decrease their donation. Two Catholic schools in the Chicago area recently announced closures due to the loss of income from the program. Dylan says with rising costs, there is always a fear of school closures, but they are working to prevent that in Peoria through fundraising and budgeting. Christopher Wilson is the executive director at Peoria Academy. He says the loss of their eight scholarships won't create huge impacts, but they are still looking to save money. For us, it's about looking at every line item and making sure that it is absolutely necessary. Maybe putting off some some projects that are discretionary. We might not redo our landscaping (laughs) this year. We might have to look hard at whether some of our positions can be full or part-time. A measure proposed in the Illinois General Assembly would see the program return, albeit with a smaller tax credit. A smaller tax credit will naturally mean a lower scholarship amount and less access. And so, you know, that's the kind of conversation that I think we need to be having as as a state and as, as a community to say what level of support do we think is important. The measure is sponsored by three Chicago area Democrats, but has not seen any movement at this point. I'm Cameron Cutinello. The Chicago Board of Education has approved a resolution calling for police officers to be pulled out of schools next year. It's a reversal of a decision the board made four years ago, and Sarah Karp reports. Outside of school district headquarters, students rallied, holding banners made years ago with the tagline, Cops Out of CPS. Like at many of other protests, students made the case that police don't belong in schools. Here's DeAndre, a student at Dunbar High School on the south side. None of us feel safe around police. We do feel safe when we have strong and positive relationships with our friends and classmates. The morning looked and sounded a lot like the angry student protests demanding police be removed from schools during the summer of George Floyd's killing. After those protests, the school board at the time voted to let individual schools decide if they want to keep cops. The difference this time, the Board of Education was about to do what the students were demanding. Anna Durr was a student in high school in 2020. I remember standing here years ago in this same uh, exact spot um, calling for this and the fact that um, we have a mayor that's supporting us loudly in the public is even more historic because this has been something we've been fighting for. Mayor Brandon Johnson promised during his campaign that he would remove police and the vote from his handpicked school board was unanimous. Still, the meeting was contentious. Dwayne Truss was the first public speaker and he lit into board members. Truss is a longtime education advocate from the West Side. 
He talked about the recent shooting outside of Sun High School and the charges against two teenagers for the shooting. A 14-year-old child murdered another child, and those are the complexities that I, we, my kids, my five young men who I raised in the Austin community, who have kids in the high school in the Austin community, have to deal with every day. But we got these social justice liberal individuals that want to keep telling black folks, we know what's best for you. We know what this is best for you. Trust blasted the board for taking the power to decide away from local school councils. And Trust, who used to be a board member himself, refused to stop insisting. And eventually the board had to go into recess to shut him down. Twenty elected officials came to speak on the matter, advocating on both sides of the issue. A number of them made the same point as Trust that the board was not dealing with reality. Other person, Stephanie Coleman, whose ward includes Inglewood and Back of the Yards, spoke of the work of two school-based officers in her ward. That we were able to save lives of the young people who had some, some street wars, some beef, but because these officers built relationships with the students, I plead with this board to please give those principles but board members insisted that removing police officers was the right thing to do. Reading from prepared statements, they stressed that only 39 schools still have police officers. And despite people's fears, when other schools removed the officers, as one member put it, the sky did not fall. Two-thirds of majority black schools have at least one police officer. White, Asian, and Latino students are much more likely to be in schools without them. Board member Michelle Morales said that contributes to differences in how discipline is meted out in the district. It is the board's responsibility to establish uniform standards so that we do not have disparity. Elizabeth Todd Breland is the only board member who is a holdover from the former mayoral administration. She has consistently voted against keeping police in schools, insisting that research shows it leads to more students being arrested and contributes to the school to prison pipeline. She's been on the board for many protests and discussions about police and schools. We've learned from young people that we keep us safe. And it really will take all of us within and outside of schools across the city, building relationships to reimagine and implement holistic safety. The vote means the school district will have to develop a new safety policy that does not include police officers. Sarah Karp, WBZ News. Today, in a community near you, students may have traveled to school on an electric bus. What was once a rare technology is now hitting roads across the Midwest. After a long ramp-up, the Environmental Protection Agency is beginning to send almost 5,000 electric buses to schools. Kate Grumke with Harvest Public Media reports on what early adopters think so far. Kids run through cold rain toward idling buses as school lets out in the Rawls County School District. About 800 students attend this rural district in Northeast Missouri. It has a fleet of 17 buses that pretty much all look the same. But two of these school buses are running on batteries. This school district is one of the first in Missouri to get these electric buses from a new federal program. On board, the kids are excited. Ninth grader Ian Joyner, who happens to be the driver's son, has noticed the difference. It's 
It's not as loud as the other ones, but it's definitely fun to ride this bus. Ian takes his seat as the drivers get the all clear to head home. All right, drivers, have a safe trip. Enjoy your night. The EPA's clean school bus program has sent at least one electric bus to almost every U.S. state, and thousands more are on their way to school districts across the Midwest. So far, the federal government has invested $1.8 billion in the program throughout the country. It's funded by the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act. As more and more school districts try out this new technology, reviews are coming in. Well, I'm in love with the buses so far. That's Shawnee Public Schools Transportation Director John Wiles. His district is on the Citizen Potawatomi Nation's tribal lands in Shawnee, Oklahoma. They have two electric buses so far and should receive two more in the next month. A major benefit is the fact that these produce zero emissions, and so they can sit there in line uh, waiting for the kids to get out without creating any kind of breathing problems whatsoever. The lower greenhouse gas emissions from the electric buses also help slow climate change. But there's one big downside, the price tag. A new electric school bus can cost about three times more than a new diesel bus. Plus, districts have to install expensive charging infrastructure. At the same time, the electricity is less expensive per mile compared to diesel. Maintenance is also cheaper, in part because the buses don't need oil changes. But altogether, that still doesn't make up the cost difference. Jeff Dix is superintendent of two school districts in northern Iowa. One is Albert City Truesdale, which got an electric bus in December. You can't spend four times, three and a half times what you would for a regular bus. We actually have a solar field that provides electricity to our entire building, but that did make sense. That pays for itself in eight years. Sue Gander says that's why this federal program is so important. She's director of the Electric School Bus Initiative, an organization that wants to see the entire U.S. fleet go electric. The federal money, particularly in the last couple of years, has been, you know, has been really instrumental in, in making a lot of this momentum possible. Back in Rawls County, Transportation Supervisor Eric Joyner drives one of the electric buses through a typical route on gravel roads between farms. He's really excited about these buses. I think it's fun. I like driving a school bus better than my own personal vehicle, so <laughs> But he gets what some call range anxiety on his long rural routes. One time his battery got down to 8%. So when you start getting that low, you start to kind of panic a little bit, especially when you got kids on board. One of the buses had a technical problem early on, taking it out of service. And that experience makes it hard for Joyner to recommend them. Still, he says, this program has been great for cash-strapped rural school districts, mostly because it meant free buses. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Kate Grumke. You're listening to Statewide, still ahead, how some healthcare groups in Illinois handled sexual abuse allegations against staff. We'll be right back. I'm Sean Crawford, and this is Statewide. A Quad Cities area high schooler designed an app to reduce food waste, and it's won him a trip to Washington, D.C. Rachel Duggett has more. Akhil Kumar is a junior at Moline High School. After his classes, homework, and extracurriculars, he spends nights and weekends working on food flow. It's an app that would allow restaurants to send a notice to nonprofits like shelters and food banks when they have excess food at the end of the day. My family is 
the household of engineers. So from a very young, early age, I was introduced to engineering, technology, and science. As I entered high school, I started learning more advanced programming skills and languages such as Python and Java, and I started joining my computer science club. I became involved with robotics, and from there, I started expanding my skills and then creating projects on the side such as Foodflow. He won a national coding competition called the Congressional App Challenge for Foodflow. The app is still in its early stages, but Kumar says he hopes to expand it and continue coding in the future. I just want to work with one food business and one nonprofit and really get the platform solidified between those two organizations. And after I figure out all the details to get that done, I want to then later work with all the organizations in my area and connect as many organizations with each other on that platform so that eventually the organizations can kind of just enter whatever food they have and take it from there. In the spring, Kumar will travel to D.C. to meet with the other winners of the Congressional App Challenge. I'm Rachel Duckett. Even after multiple patients accused some medical workers of sexual abuse during their care, some health care groups allow those same workers to continue seeing patients. That's one of the key findings in a year-long Chicago Tribune investigation. The Trib reporters identified 52 workers accused in the past decade of abusing patients, and they looked into how hospital systems failed to adequately report and address the allegations. Many times, they tried to quietly handle the cases. Emily Horner is one of those investigative reporters. Sasha Ann Simons spoke with her. This has been a long project uh, for you and Chicago Tribune reporter Lisa Schenker. So talk about how you compiled all of this information. Yeah, so we had to search a lot of different places to, you know, try to identify these types of cases. There are, you know, big names that you hear about every once in a while Mm -hmm. when a, a, you know, healthcare provider gets accused by like multiple patients. Um, But we were curious to see whether, you know, it was also happening on a smaller scale Mm -hmm. um, in cases you might not hear about as much. So we, you know, got records through um, Freedom of Information Act from police departments, from the state health department um, doing investigations, from civil lawsuits, from criminal cases, um, all different places to try to, you know, get a sense of um, what was actually happening, how frequent this is. And was was the the initial idea sparked from a particular tip that Uh, you got or a particular case? Yeah, so um, Lisa covers, you know, the healthcare beat for the Tribune, and she had been following along with a case of a doctor, um, an OBGYN doctor, um, who had, you know, been accused of uh, facing lots of lawsuits against uh, from women um, who had, you know, alleged inappropriate conduct during OBGYN appointments. And so, you know, the idea kind of started from there, how does something like this happen? Mm-hmm. Um, and we decided to, you know, kind of take a, a bigger look at, you know, where else might this be happening? Yeah. And is this a common thing? And which doctor were you referring to there? Um, it's uh, Dr. Fabio Ortega. Dr. Ortega, yeah. And and so to conduct this, this full investigation or this year-long project, I mean, how many people did you interview? You know, we interviewed a couple dozen people. Um, we interviewed, uh, you know, the documents that we were able to get from, you know, the disciplinary the medical disciplinary board of the state and, you know, police departments, all of that. As yeah. Well. And so let, let's go back to talking about Dr. Ortega, right? Uh, give us the details here. How many women accused him of, of sexual assault? And then what did Ortega's former employer, which was North Shore University Health System, 
What did it do to address the complaints? So um, there are currently, or there have been uh, 30 lawsuits um, filed against uh, Dr. Ortega and the hospital system he works for and also his former employer. Um, and, you know, we had found that, um, you know, the there were a couple of complaints that were received and the doctor continued to work um, with patients even after, you know, the hospital system was notified that he was, you know, under police investigation yeah. as well. And, and what's alarming here, this isn't the only time that a healthcare system waited to act on, on sexual abuse allegations. Talk about that. You, you report on patients at Glenbrook Hospital in Glenview who accused a nurse, uh, David Georgiou, of abuse. What was that story? Yes, so we had come across this case. Um, there was a, a woman who was in her mid-70s who had, you know, broken her femur. She's in the emergency department, convinces her daughter to, you know, go home, get some rest. So she's alone in her hospital room. And, um, you know, a, a couple days later, she is, you know, super emotional after she's had this, this surgery uh, on her broken leg, a very painful, you know, experience to, to go through. Right. Um, and, you know, she shares that, you know, she had uh, engaged in sexual activity with this, this nurse and, um, you know, had been assaulted by him. And it was, you know, a, a really emotional thing. Her and her daughter, you know, reported this to the police. They told nurses. Um, there was an investigation. The hospital um, determined that the, the findings were unsubstantiated. You know, they moved on. Um, obviously, the, the patient did not move on. Right. Um, but the, the police, you know, didn't have sufficient evidence. And so, you know, the, this nurse continued seeing patients. Um, about nine months later, another patient makes like a quite similar um, allegation of abuse uh, at the hospital. Mm -hmm. And it's only, you know, after that incident that um, that nurse was, you know, terminated and he was uh, later criminally charged and um, is, you know, currently serving time in prison related to the, the first attack. Right. But at first, even with this woman and her daughter's complaint, the hospital system found that there wasn't enough evidence or the police found rather that there wasn't enough evidence at the time so the hospital allowed him to keep working with more patients correct you found that illinois healthcare providers had quietly settled lawsuits as well right or, or entered into these confidentiality agreements with patients talk us through that yeah so you know a lot of um what we were curious about was like what the consequences were mm -hmm. of, you know, not removing a provider who uh, had, you know, abused an, a patient or was accused of abusing a patient. And so, you know, a lot of the ways that we found out about these cases were civil lawsuits. That's, you know, the only place you see mention of these things. And so a lot of those, you know, lawsuits they settled, mm -hmm. um, they didn't go to trial. Uh, some, you know, patients that we had tried to speak to for the story, uh, you know, were unable to talk to us because they had entered into confidentiality agreements, wow. um, you know, at pursuant to the settlements. So, uh, yeah, a lot of, a lot of the time that is, you know, appeared to be the only kind of consequence that the, the hospital systems were, um, paying were, you know, the, 
whatever these settlement amounts were with mm-hmm. the victims after, you know, people filed lawsuits in court. I mean, and I, I suppose in this year-long process for, for you all, for you and for Lisa, I mean, it, it starts to not be a surprise anymore as you're seeing case after case sort of follow the same pattern, right? Where they're just waiting to act on some of these really, you know, huge allegations. Yeah, I think that, you know, that stops being a surprise to some extent when you're working on a project like this. But, you know, every case is still surprising um, because you, you know, don't want to see these things happening. Um, And I think, you know, it was surprising as we were doing the reporting to see kind of the... um, lack of consequences Mm -hmm. in some of these incidents, even in in cases that seem very serious um, and in in instances where people were later, you know, charged criminally and and convicted um, related to incidents that occurred at these hospitals. So I want you to walk me through how this is actually supposed to happen. Under Illinois law, a patient reports sexual abuse by a hospital employee or a medical staff member. What is supposed to actually happen? Yes, so if you are receiving care at a hospital, um, basically the, uh, you know, hospital staff who receives that complaint, if they have a reasonable belief that it may have occurred, they're supposed to, you know, do a couple of things. One of them is to report this incident to the Illinois Department of Public Health. Mm -hmm. It just says, hey, we got an allegation of patient abuse here. Um, And then they are supposed to, you know, take action of some kind to protect patients from abuse. So whether that means, you know, launching an investigation, removing a provider from patient care, making them work with a chaperone, um, that kind of thing. Those are the things that, you know, should happen. Uh, And did you find almost 100% of the time in your reporting that that did not happen? So we found, we definitely found some instances where that did not happen. Um, We found cases uh, where, you know, patients alleged abuse by hospital workers and those incidents were never reported to the Illinois Department of Public Health. Um, And, you know, once that reporting process like begins, then the Illinois Department of Public Health can, you know, investigate the hospital's response to an allegation of patient abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, if they never hear about uh, a patient allegation of abuse, they can't look at the hospital's response to that allegation of abuse. Um, So, you know, we definitely found that these things did not always happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Illinois lawmakers uh, to that end passed a bill that was meant to improve the system back in 2005. So what, what is happening with that now? Yes, so there is this this 2005 law um, was passed. It was meant to kind of create some transparency uh, around never events, which are like hospital events that should never happen. Okay, uh, operating on the wrong body part, a patient gets sexually abused, mm-hmm. um, and what was supposed to happen was, you know, this incident would get reported. The hospital would then um, take a look at and identify the root cause of how this happened and then come up with a plan for it not to happen again. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, all this was going to be compiled in a database and, you know, there would be annual reports for the public to see. Um, We are, you know, in 2024, that law has yet to be implemented. Um, There were some like financial issues, I guess, at the beginning. Um, Nearly 20 years later. Correct. Yes. And the law included a loophole that that health systems fell into, uh, like what what happened here with the accusations by patients at the Illinois Bone and Joint Clinic, 
what was that story? Yes. Yeah, so, um, you know, if you are not getting care at a hospital, um, this kind of reporting requirement to the Illinois Department of Public Health uh, does not exist. The Illinois Dep uh, Department of Public Health doesn't have, you know, oversight. They don't, you're not, they're not responsible for investigating um, what goes on there. You know, it's, so, it's not So what covered. kind of recourse does the state have in place if healthcare providers don't promptly report patient abuse? So, um, you know, outside of hospitals, uh, the like, you could potentially lose your ability to operate a, a clinic um, if you don't, uh, you know, get rid of a person who has uh, behaved inappropriately. Yeah. Um, but you know, outside of that, um, that that's it. Mm -hmm. And that leaves patients with with what, right? I mean, how are they recovering from from the abuse? Yeah, we you know spoke with with patients and um, understandably these experiences were traumatic um, and not easy to get over. If you're a patient and you've experienced something like this in, you know, a healthcare setting, um, some people told us, you know, it, it was hard to continue getting medical care, um, you know, and feeling safe uh, to, to be able to do that. Yeah, I can imagine that. And, and you and your colleague, Lisa Schenker, you're not done. You say that you're going to continue this reporting. Leave me with this. What kind of information are you you still looking for? What what questions are still left? And, and how can folks reach out? Um, you can definitely reach out uh, on our website. We have a, a form for people to fill out, you know, if they want to share information on this topic about, you know, how healthcare systems responded to um, allegations of abuse. So on chicagotribune.com. Yes, on okay. chicagotribune.com. Um, and, you know, there will definitely be more reporting on this topic. We're looking, you know, more deeply uh, in future stories um, at, you know, providers who uh, don't have oversight by the Illinois Department of Public Health. You know, these are things happening outside of hospitals. Um, so that's to come. Yeah. Um, stay tuned. Investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune, Emily Horner. She spoke with Sasha Ann Simons. We have a link to that investigation at our website. We're out of time for Statewide this week. Thanks for joining us. Be with us again next week. We'll be back with more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. You can find us where you get your podcasts through the NPR app and at nprillinois.org. I'm Sean Crawford, and Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois with help from other Illinois public radio stations. Bye.